This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon. My name's Erin Jones and I'm your host for the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show this afternoon. Uh, I'll just quickly make one announcement before we get going. Uh, 3CR is involved in a Pick My project and we're looking at raising nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit the station for greater accessibility. That's a um, program that people can vote on. So if you go to pickmyproject.vic.gov.au, that actually closes today, so 5 p.m. So please um, vote for our project. It's really important that the station has universal access and that people of all abilities can access this important community resource. So let's get on with the show. Beyond Zero Emissions has, um, is always doing important work, but lately what we've been focusing on in the research realm at least is the electrifying industry work, which has been headed up by Michael Lord. We had a wonderful event on Thursday last week, which was where we launched that, and it was called the Electrifying Industry Summit. And when we've put out pieces of research in the past, we've um, kind of done them as a standalone event and, uh, you know, done an official launch and had people different... Um, you know, industry leaders or politicians launch that piece of work. We did a little bit differently this time and actually had a summit where we had a whole lot of different people come and and speak to the topic, not just to the work, but we presented the work and um, we had people there from industry, um, manufacturing, uh, individuals and alliances of, of different groups, um, state government, different policy people. It was a really informative day and the work was really, really well received. So we're going to be talking about that predominantly today um, and talking with Michael Lord about the work. Uh, we did want to bring you another interview from um, uh, industry talking about um, renewable energy and, and energy and uh, what the sort of big factors are facing manufacturing and how important manufacturing is for the economy and, and what kind of opportunities the transition to renewable energy is is going to represent. Um, we'll have to bring you that at another show where our speaker is actually overseas and we've had a few issues um, making that happen. Uh, so we might be able to bring you that, that next week. But we're ranging um, on a few different topics tonight 
tonight, given that. But we will start off firstly by a discussion that I had earlier today with Michael Lord about this really important work, which is available as all our work is on the Beyond Zero Emissions website. So that's bze.org.au and that report is available for free download. It's a really important part of the sector. We're starting to get to the um, probably the more challenging issues. We've looked at um, you know some of the more low-hanging fruit, I suppose, in terms of of um, transitioning to renewable energy uh, and getting to a zero emissions future. But now that we're starting to get into um, some of the more tricky things, and I think beyond zero emissions is actually really at the forefront of this, probably across the world, and in terms of the work that we've looked at in industrial processes, cement, um, some of these key things and, and, you know, Every part of our of our day and the, and the materials that we um, just take for granted, the the built environment, is all um, uh, and our consumable products, whether it be food, textiles, um, um, metals, everything basically in our material world goes through a, an industrial process to be made, and. Um, moving towards electrification of those processes so that they can become renewable sources as opposed to predominantly um, gas and and coal-fired in terms of those industrial manufacturing processes. So let's get on with talking with Michael about um, that work and uh, the summit that happened last week. Listeners, I'm really pleased to... um, talk about electrifying industry today. It's uh, the latest piece of research that Beyond Zero Emissions have put out and that was released on Thursday as part, um, well, we did a summit which was a really interesting way of doing it and brought a whole lot of speakers together. But it's an important piece of the puzzle. You know, we started out looking at stationary energy right back in 2010. We've looked at vehicles, we've looked at high-speed rail, we've looked at Australia as a renewable superpower, um, sort of renewable energy superpower. And this kind of piece of research is incredibly important because we're starting to get to maybe the... Um, the uh, what we could call the higher hanging fruit when we're starting to look into industrial processes and manufacturing and those things that we use every single day um, that use energy and a lot of it fossil fuel energy in the creation of them. So BZD is really leading the way in looking at how we tackle some of those um, those processes that are an inherent part of. Uh, of the world that we live in. So I'm really pleased to have Michael Lord on the line. Michael is the Head of Research and the Lead Author for the Electrify Industry Work. So welcome, Michael. Hi, Erin. Good to be back on the show. So just um, maybe let's just start by outlining what this piece of work covers and, and maybe some of the, the major findings, and then we'll start getting into some detail. Yeah, thanks, Erin. The report's called Electrifying Industry, and it's about uh, replacing fossil fuels in the production of everyday goods and materials with renewable electricity. So if you think, um, if you look around you now, um, at the materials around you, you might be able to see glass, concrete, metal, textiles, paper. Nearly every material you can think of that we make requires heat in the production. Um, so to get that heat, 
nine times out of ten, a factory will burn fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, or coal. And renewable electricity, so solar panels and wind turbines on their own, won't reduce the emissions from those uh, uh, industrial heat processes. But this is what we tried to tackle in this report. Uh, we've presented one way of eliminating those emissions, which is to replace the fossil fuels with renewable electricity. And we think it's, uh, as far as we're aware, it's the first report of its kind in the world which tackles in a holistic way this issue of industrial heat processes, which is important because uh, it's about 8% of Australia's emissions, so uh, equivalent to every car on the road in Australia, and it's about 12% of uh, global emissions just from the heat required uh, by factories. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's easy for people to think of, of uh, when we think of, you know, grid power currently, you know, coming from fossil fuels. But like you say, it's kind of, and that's, you know, an easy replace with um, with the wind or solar or all the various renewable technologies. But this process of, of heating materials and, and heats to, to make a whole selection of um, all sorts of things that maybe, you know, we don't actually necessarily associate with that, but that's, a, that's really intensive use of fossil fuels, isn't it? Like you say, representing 8% of emissions. Yeah, that's right. And, and perhaps we'll get onto some of those processes in a minute. But the point you just made is a really important one, that we're calling for industries to electrify but it is important that they don't just go to using grid electricity, which is still very high carbon, particularly in Australia. Uh, it, we're saying that at the same time as changing those processes within the factory, they source their electricity from renewables. And now for the first time, that's possible for uh, a manufacturer to do. They don't have to wait for any kind of national, national policy or a trans, transition to a 100% renewable grid. They can either build their own renewable um, on-site solar or off-site solar and wind, or more likely they can uh, sign a renewable energy power purchase agreement. They just strike a contract to take their renewable electricity from a local uh, solar plant or wind farm or both, and that way they're getting renewables. And we're seeing more and more companies do this anyway, simply as a way, um, apart from anything else, of saving money. Mm. And it's a win-win situation, particularly those, whether they're you know, doing their own um, facility um, or the power purchase agreements, because yeah. for those you know, organisations and individuals, etc., that are trying to get renewable um, large-scale capacity off the ground, a power purchase agreement gives them that bankability when they've got long contracts in place that are going to take up that energy, isn't it? So it's, it's kind of works on for both parties. Exactly, Erin, yeah. Having a, having a large manufacturer say to you as a wind farm developer, we will take whatever it is, 40% of the energy you're going to produce and being able to sign that contract up front before you develop the wind farm gives your, other, your investors the certainty that your wind farm is going to make money and helps that wind farm get off the ground. So exactly as you say, it helps both parties, the renewable energy industry and the manufacturing sector. And we've had some pretty big organisations go into these, haven't we? I mean, what are some examples? One that comes to mind was um, some of the big steel manufacturers are doing this, and I know one in Queensland as well is actually building their own. But, but just give our listeners some examples of the type of organisations that are going into these agreements. Uh, we've covered an entire page of, uh, of examples of companies either building their own renewable energy or signing agreements. But I think you wanted, the ones you've mentioned are 
some of the most important because they show that renewable electricity is is um, it's a, got to a stage where it's capable of powering very heavy industry. So the Queensland one you mentioned is, a, is Sun Metals, uh, that, uh, are a zinc refinery, very heavy user of electricity, and they'll now get, I think it's a third of their energy from a solar farm that they're building uh, near their plant in Queensland. I think that's from memory 124 megawatts, which is a pretty sizable facility. That's right, that's right. Um, that, that, that's what I remember as well, Erin. And in Australia, we've just got two steel makers, Blue Scope and Liberty One Steel. They are both going into renewables. Uh, Liberty One Steel are particularly enthusiastic. Uh, they have plans to build, um, you see different numbers, but I think it's around a gigawatt of solar and storage. They want to provide all their electricity for uh, several steel works they have around Australia using um, mostly solar, uh, but also with storage backup. So that's a real uh, sort of economic vote of confidence from hard-headed business people that renewables can power heavy industry. Mm. And I think the other thing that it gives businesses, and this has become a, a, a huge issue over the last, um, you know, let's say, decade, but is... It's not just the cost of things, but it's the volatility. And that's what manufacturers have in a whole lot of Australian businesses. Just have got to the point where they're hardly viable because of these huge energy costs that they're paying and the volatility of not being able to factor that into their business planning. That, that, that's exactly right, Erin. Uh, a lot of manufacturers have seen both their gas and electricity bills double or even treble overnight. That's a very uh, unpleasant surprise for businesses and something that most of them didn't factor in to their long-term strategy. Uh, and for lots, you know, you know, can't absorb those type of variations and, and really it, it's, it can be the difference between the, the business prospering and, and going into receivership. Yeah, and energy costs are one point that manufacturers compete with um, with other countries overseas and energy costs used to be low in Australia and in fact we saw some high in, uh, intensity, energy intensive industries move to Australia because of low energy costs like aluminium. Um, now it, there's a danger of it being the other way, but by signing a renewable energy power purchase agreement or building your own, you at least have the knowledge, you have a lot more uh, certainty, not complete certainty, but a lot more certainty about what your energy costs are going to be. They're certainly got, not going to double or treble overnight. Mm. And to some manufacturers, that that reduction in risk uh, is worth as much as the lower cost that you'll see from renewables. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that I thought was interesting in, in the report is, um, you know, not only is, is it make sense from that point of view, but, but when capturing this opportunity of moving to, um, you know, renewable energy and renewable um, sources for things like industrial heat, which we'll get into some of the technicalities, but but the, the idea or the, the Potentiality of things like carbon tariffs on imports to, or other, you know, on our exports imported into other countries that are actually have got government policy in place and are, are kind of looking at that, uh, that thing and saying, well, why should our local um, manufacturers be tolerant of imports that exist in an environment where you know, carbon pollution can continue without restraint. So I think, you know, in a broader policy and, and um, framework from a government perspective, 
that's something that, I mean, I don't think it's kind of on most people's minds, but as we move further and further down this road where countries are actually taking these things really seriously, then, you know, there starts to be an argument that um, by not doing it, you know, there might be penalties in place. And um, what sort of feedback have you had around that? I know that that... um, it's that whole kind of divestment and, and capturing the risk associated with with not doing things is you know will start to be just as um, you know much much of the driver as as the positive side of kind of controlling the volatility and and cost of the energy. Yeah, that's right. It's it's not a cost free option for Australia as a nation or manufacturers within Australia just to ignore carbon to pretend that greenhouse gas emissions don't have a cost. Um, because because of actions taking place overseas. So the European Union and China, which together are a significant chunk of mm. the global economy, now both have emissions trading schemes that include manufacturers. So they are imposing costs on manufacturers. So the question is, how long are they going to accept countries like Australia imposing no costs on their manufacturers on their carbon emissions? Uh, We've seen Emmanuel Macron, the president of France at the start of the year, raise the prospect of carbon tariffs on countries that, uh, like Australia, uh, avoid any sort of kind of uh, cost on carbon. And a couple of weeks ago, the European Union, who are currently negotiating a trade deal with Australia, said, we may not sign this trade deal unless we see significant action on climate policy. Uh, from you. So we're beginning to see that start to bite. Mm. That's, that's been we can't exist in a bubble, you know. It's well, yeah, we can't, we can't exist in a bubble. It's, it's actually impossible. Manufacturers exist in the global economy and um, uh, uh, the, the Australian Industry Group's uh, CEO, Innes Wilcox, has recently recognised this and I think he said, we quote him in the report, uh, he said something like, now's not the time to test uh, the tolerance of the international community for free riders, mm. free riders being uh, com- countries that don't impose a cost on carbon. Yeah. So there's a kind of, you know, you've kind of got a push and a pull, haven't you? Um, there's some real positives out of doing it, but there's also going to be potentially some um, some penalties for for not do- for not doing this stuff. So so it's kind of working in, in both directions. But as you say, Australia at one time had low energy costs and actually attracted industry those particularly heavy users like um, aluminium and, and, the, and the like. So the potential is there to actually go back to that of being a, um, you know, we know we've got an abundance of, of um, potential for both solar and wind and other various renewable energy sources. So it could actually be a, an enormous um, uh, opportunity that we're looking at, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, and we made this point back in our renewable energy superpower in 2015 that Australia's potential to generate renewable electricity from solar and wind compared to our low population is actually unique in the world. Mm. We could have as much renewable electricity as we want and much more to spare. We can, we can export it. We can replace the energy we use at the moment with renewables. And we can, and the focus of this report, we can expand our manufacturing sector and use the renewable electricity to power energy-intensive manufacturing. And, I mean, manufacturing is, is a great driver for high-quality jobs and affects a lot of other industries and has a lot of flow-on effects as well. That's right. Um, it's a really important sector. It's also the, the sector, like no other, which drives innovation 
we hear politicians of all stripes talk about the importance of innovation. Um, well, that's the same as talking about the importance of manufacturing, which is driving innovation. So it's very important to support a manufacturing sector. Let's start getting into some of the, the, the technologies and technicalities. What are the key technologies that allow this transition to renewable um, energy within, within industry? Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's important to say that it's a very broad range of technologies because when we're talking about manufacturing, we're, we're talking about thousands of different processes, even though the vast majority do require heat. Um, so we're talking about different temperatures you know, and different, different um, types of process. So one of the important technologies is heat pumps. So a very common way of delivering heat in a factory is through a centralized gas boiler, which then distributes steam around the factory through distribution pipes. A heat pump, uh, modern industrial heat pumps can also produce steam. They can also produce hot water or hot air. And instead of having this centralized production of the heat and the long distribution pipes, the heat pumps sit where they're needed. Um, so they achieve efficiencies by avoiding the distribution of heat, which all, always leads to losses, but also because they are uh, incredibly efficient. So like a um, reverse cycle air conditioner, which is several hundred percent efficient, it produces several times more thermal energy than the electricity it uses. Industrial heat pumps are the same. So because of that efficiency, they can pay for themselves very quickly compared to gas boilers. And from what you're saying as well, there, there's also a benefit when, when you describe that, and this is coming from a you know, not a very technical person, but that gas system that you describe sounds like a, a fairly big all-of-factory type unit, whereas this is a bit more modular in, in effect, and, and could that be changed over in a progressive fashion? Yeah, that, that, that's a good point actually, Aaron. Um, the heat pumps will take up less space uh, than the gas system um, and they can certainly be uh, in installed in a progressive modular fashion. So if you had a particularly inefficient part of your gas distribution system, you might just replace that bit of the system with a heat pump. Uh, and then as you get confident with using heat pumps or as you have more investment money, gradually replace uh, more of the gas system with heat pumps. Uh, and a lot of the electrical technologies are like that. You can, you can, they're smaller, and you can apply them, implement them in a modular way over time. Now, I know that you've been um, working with all sorts of people across, you know, policy and industry. What's the feeling that you get from from dealing with and, and talking with some of those industry partners about? the take-up of, of these sort of alternative or, or new technology, well, they may not be new, but, but new to some of these manufacturers because, you know, quite often people are kind of, um, you know, there's the saying working, so people are so busy working in their business that they're not kind of taking that step back and looking, working on their business and, and kind of, yeah. um, because when we talk about this ability to change that over in a modular fashion and, and kind of introduce people uh, to something different, um, that may be saving them money, but, but sometimes people are so kind of involved in the minutiae that they're not seeing that. What's the kind of feeling that you're getting? And are businesses hungry for this information? Do they want to be looking for, for making that transition? Is there scepticism? What's your feeling on that? Yeah, well, uh, I suppose it's early days. We only launched the report on Thursday, and we're going to put a good few months into uh, talking to industry groups uh, and manufacturers themselves 
to find out what they do think about this. What we've found so far is that um, those with the ability to, um, to, to have you know, long-term strategies, so big companies and uh, industry groups like the Australian Industry Group, we've also worked with the Southeast Melbourne Manufacturers Alliance, they're, um, they're very positive about what we're trying to do. They um, are particularly worried about energy costs, and they're attracted to what we're showing in the report about uh, how you can be a lot more efficient by using electrical technologies and save money through that efficiency. But when it comes to the individual companies, um, one thing we have to realize is that in Australia, uh, manufacturers are unusually small. Um, the majority of uh, manufacturers here employ less than 30 people and they have much less ability to think um, strategically long term uh, and to invest. So they're, they're definitely going to need some help in this area. Uh, so there's very few examples of the type of transition we're talking about. There's lots of examples of manufacturers using renewable electricity but very few of switching from a fossil fuel driven process within the plant to an electrical one. There are a couple, uh, but most of the examples we found during the uh, report are overseas, uh, in, in Japan and Korea when it comes to heat pumps and some of the other technologies in Europe. So that, that's something they're going to need government help with. Now, for lots of people who this is not their, their background, these heating processes that we're talking about, just, I suppose, paint a little bit of a picture across what type of industries are using this and and what levels of heat are we talking about? Yeah, well, you, you know, as, as I said, it's, it's really any product or material um, you can uh, think of uh, or see at the moment. So it's, it's glass, it's metals, it's wood, plastic, textiles, food. Uh, they all require um, some kind of heat process. It's difficult to summarize what it is. But let's just, let's just take one that we've been making for thousands of years, which is brick, mm -hmm. clay bricks. Uh, how do you make one of those? Well, you get some clay and some other materials, uh, sort of squash it into a brick shape. Uh, then you have to dry it, and then you have to fire it. So firing involves heating in a kiln to a little over 1,000 degrees. And the way of achieving 1,000 degrees in a kiln for uh, thousands of years has been you burn something. Mm. Uh, and now, mostly, uh, not always, but that something is natural gas. So how do you, how do you overturn this thousands of year old uh, way of producing bricks? Uh, what we uh, show um, in the report is how you can use microwaves. So microwave assistance in the kiln, so as well as heating the bricks from the outside, the microwaves heat them simultaneously from the inside. And what that enables you to do is reduce the energy used in firing bricks by half, but also, just as importantly, speed up that process of firing bricks by m more than twice. Yeah, right. That's pretty significant. And the bricks more than twice as quickly, which has a whole lot of consequences for a brick works if they did that. Um, so that that's just... Yeah, that's, that's one example of electrifying a very, very old uh, manufacturing process. Mm. Okay, so, so really, um, and when you talk about the heat pumps, um, as you say, I mean, that's a technology that um, probably people aren't that dissimilar with. I know I had a home heat pump for my hot water and it 
it worked really well. So we're basically talking about the same type of thing, but on an industrial scale. Yeah, a, a heat pump uh, uses something called the compression and expansion cycle, um, which is really just that uh, when you when you get a gas and you compress it, uh, it heats up, and when you expand it, it cools. So anyone who's ever pumped up a bike tire knows that there's quite a bit of heat um, at the place where you're heating up the the tire, and so that's the that's because when you compress the gas, it heats. And um, anyone who's ever sprayed on deodorant knows that when you expand a gas, it cools. So it's essentially using that. Um, I've never thought about that, Michael. That's a really good way of describing it. Yeah. So um, heat pumps are used in fridges, so they're, they're sucking heat out of your fridge and sticking it out the back, so your back mm. warm for that reason. Um, so they use electricity uh, uh, to, to, to concentrate heat. An industrial heat pump needs to use a source of waste heat, of which there are lots of sources uh, in many factories, and they, use, they reuse that waste heat uh, uh, to create more heat. So we have an example, for example, in a, a brewery. So a brewery doesn't really need very high temperatures. Um, essentially, it needs to boil a large amount of liquid for a while, normally done with natural gas. Um, well, you can produce that 100, 110 degree temperature um, with a heat pump uh, and with efficiencies of several hundred percent. Mm. So really, I mean, that, that technology is applicable across a whole lot of industries. I know that that's not the only one that you look at. There's a whole lot of, we've talked a little bit about microwave and there's a whole lot of other ones that are that are there in the report and I'd encourage people that the um, that report is available on the BZE website now for free download. But I just want to briefly talk about um, the event on Thursday. Um, so BZE hosted uh, the Electrifying Industry Summit, which was a great way of, of bringing the work out to its to a public um, and, and including a whole lot of other people um, to talk about various elements of, as you say, industry groups, um, policy framework, government support programs. How, how, do, how did... Um, how was that process for you of, of presenting there and, and what was the feedback like? Yeah, it was a really new thing for us, Erin, to do a summit. Um, with BZE has a history of doing evening launch events to launch our reports. And this time we thought, well, we'll, we'll do something a, a bit more grand. We'll have a, an entire day summit, which was at the Australian Synchrotron, and as well as Launching the report, we had speakers, as you say, from industry, from manufacturing, from investors. We had people talking about electric vehicles as well. Um, and I thought it was a really inspiring event. It was it was well attended, and uh, certainly all the feedback uh, I've got, and we've had lots of feedback, has been very positive. And I know you were there as well. How, how did you find it? Yeah, look, I thought it was great. I think it's a great way of um, keeping the research alive and as a, as a kind of... Um living thing and, and having that interaction and I think it's it's just as important I think just to bring the right people together in the room um, and you know creating that momentum and that energy and, and keeping that that going forward so no I think it was a, it was a resounding success yeah yeah thanks Erin oh, it was excellent very good well look we better um, keep moving on but I really appreciate your time today Michael and congratulations I think it was um, a great piece of work and a great way to um, 
bring it to the, the wider public as well. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing where that goes. And, and as you say, um, you know, this work that BZD is doing is really important. Tackling the, um, the issues that uh, a lot of others simply aren't tackling, as you say, probably a world first. We've, we've talked about cement and now we're talking about industrial processes, things that a lot of other people have just put in the too hard basket. Um, and we can't transition without these, without looking at, at these different sectors. I mean, you know, it's, um, we're kind of getting beyond the low hanging fruit now and we need to start looking at, at uh, all of the things that, that contribute to our emissions pic- picture. This is a really important piece of that. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for having me back. No problem. Thanks, Michael. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide. Literally. Streaming weather, we're on. You waved your crooked wand along an icy pond with a frozen moon. A murder of silhouette crows I saw and the tears on my face. And the skates on the pond They spell Alice I disappear in your name But you must wait for me Somewhere across the sea There's the wreck of a ship
and so secret kiss brings madness with bliss and I will think of this when I'm dead in my grave set me adrift and I'm lost over there and I must be Skating on your name And by tracing it twice I fell through the ice There's only That was Tom Waits with the song Alice, which is a bit of a old favourite of mine. And before that, we were speaking with Michael Lord, who is the head of research at Beyond Zero Emissions and the lead author on the latest piece of research, Electrifying Industry, which had its public launch at the Electrifying Industry Summit last Thursday, which was a resounding success for all involved. And um, congratulations to... Uh, all the the people that were involved in the nuts and bolts of organising that, a lot of the BZE staff, so it was a, it was a great day, and that document will um, be launched at other events um, in the future going forward as well. Really important um, work that's going on in a sector that's not got a lot of uh, a lot of um, work going on to show how we can move to 100% renewable energy and zero emissions. So um, we're now going to change speed a little bit and follow up with what's been going on down in Western Port, which is a campaign that we've been following and um, we're going to see where they're up to. So listeners, I've got on the line Louise Page from Save Western Port and we've been following the campaign that um, Louise is part of uh, down in that Western Port area, which is... uh, in um, Mornington Peninsula, Western Port, Phillip Island, all in that region where AGL is proposing some fairly significant uh, gas developments. So, Louise, we might just, um, for our listeners that aren't familiar, just get you to recap what's going on down there and where the campaign is up to. Sure. Thanks, Erin. AGL's plan is to put a what is called an FSRU, which is a floating storage and regasification unit, at the Jesse at Crib Point. Now, the idea of this is that the FSIU can actually regasify LNG. So what they're planning is that they will be importing LNG from overseas. So aside from the fact that Australia is set to be the world's largest gas exporter, AGL are talking about importing gas. So LNG carriers will bring... Um, their loads to Crib Point Jetty and it goes through the FSIU and AGL plans to build a 60 kilometre pipeline from Crib Point to Pakenham so that they can move the gas through the pipe to join in the Melbourne transmission line which is at Pakenham. Yeah, right. And um, we certainly know from the Beyond Zero Emissions research and um, 
you know, the whole climate action movement really that what we need to be doing is moving as quickly as possible to 100% renewable energy and there has to be divestment away and we can't have new fossil fuel infrastructure being built today for, um, you know, a projected life of probably 30 plus years. Absolutely. We've actually put that to AGL several times. In fact, just last Saturday, there was a very heated meeting in summers. AGL are, are continuing to hold some information sessions through September. And um, about 80 people turned up to summers on Saturday. And I can tell you, it's a, it was a pretty angry crowd. Um, and one of the questions was put to AGL, why are you doing this when we all know that we need to move to renewables and we don't have a shortage in gas? So the whole thing is ludicrous and we all know it's for AGL to make profit. It's for no other reason. And you don't put, you don't install a floating gas facility in a Ramsar wetland. So a wetland that has international significance, it's just crazy. Mm. Now I know last time we were speaking to you, you were delivering a petition. Can you just tell us in terms of the legislative process for approvals, where are things up to? Okay, so just last Monday, uh, AGL put, referred their submission to the government. So it's now with Richard Wynne to make a decision on whether AGL have to go through a full environmental effects statement. Now, of course, we think it's, A, we don't want it to go ahead at all, but if the government wants to go through some sort of process, then that's the obvious thing. And it's another question we put to AGL last Saturday, was why isn't AGL doing the right thing and saying themselves that they will do an EES? Because it doesn't have to be determined by the government. AGL themselves could say, look, we'll do the environmental um, effects statement just to show... Um, good faith to the community that we're serious about ensuring that there's no damage to the Ramsar wetland and the UNESCO biosphere that is the Mornington Peninsula. And I see recently also that the Mornington Peninsula Shire has come out um, in support of your position in terms of um, the inappropriateness of this development. That must have been pleasing. That's right. It was fantastic news. We presented to the council uh, June, I think it was June 6th, and um, told them about our concerns. And actually prior to that, the mayor had been on John Fain saying he thought it was a good thing for jobs, but he soon realised that the information that he was receiving perhaps was um, more biased than it should be. And once he heard from the community about the things that we had researched, he changed his tune along with the rest of the council and they are now supporting us, which is the best news we could have heard because we were pretty dismayed that um, our council didn't seem to be either um, interested in the in us in on this side of the peninsula or the fact that it could have potential damage. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so where are we up to then now? I, I see you've, um, you've got a pretty active website and petitions going around. What can people do now if they, A, want to engage in the campaign or how can they get their voice behind uh, where you're at and um, voice their, their disapproval of this project? We've just um, revamped our website somewhat, so we've, we've got a few more uh, things on there that help people 
join us and make it a bit easier for those that are really time poor as well. If they go to savewesternport.org, there's a Take Action page, and on that Take Action page, they can sign our petition. And when they sign that petition, which is a, a letter to Minister Wynne, it also automatically sends a letter to Richard Wynne from that person. So it has a twofold effect, and they can also elect to join to, to um, go onto our database for newsletters and things like that. So um, that's the first thing. The other thing is uh, AGL's AGM is on the 26th of September and we will be rallying outside that AGM. That's in Melbourne. That's right, Melbourne Recital Centre and we'll have the information on our website about that as well if people are interested. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a really important point and... Um We've talked a little bit about that and, and, and fiduciary responsibility um, for organisations and uh, shareholder activism I think is a, is a growing uh, movement for people to um, really leverage the decisions of these big corporates. Absolutely, because we actually think that if the shareholders knew that something AGL is doing could have such a significant effect on such an international area which is vital for migratory birds and fish stocks and all sorts of things, I think they'd be pretty alarmed. Yeah, exactly. And um, if, they, if they're not alarmed by that, the fact is the economics um, is more and more going away from, from gas and as more heavy users of, an, of um, energy, industry, etc., move to renewables, which is already today cheaper, and we've um, just put out a whole lot of research in our electrifying industry reports around that um, it's, 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 not, it's not a good bet on any front no. going with gas. So, um, Macquarie recently re- uh, released a report that said they actually believe that after having done thorough research on the gas industry, they actually think that the idea of these import terminals will actually keep the price high rather than reducing it. And that was one of the justifications for AGL starting out on this proposal that it would, in their words, put downward pressure on prices. But Macquarie actually refute that and think it will have the opposite effect. Mm, okay. Well, look, um, I'd encourage people to have a look at that, savewesternport.org, um, all the information there. We appreciate your time today, Louise, and um, keep up um, the good work. Thank you. You're more than welcome, Erin, and thanks for keeping in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is James Henry here, and you're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. Three, three, five, and a. Five. 
father's dream died that night Just to keep that electricity on And it's the darkest side of my heart that dies when you come to me And it's the golden ticket I win when you kill my enemies Higher the father's cry in the softest side when I'm empty But if you leave me, I'll hide in a game like Sin City Oh, when I die, I'm alive When I lose, I find my identity We want to keep on um, following up. There's all sorts of actions going on. Obviously, we've just been talking a lot today about the research Beyond Zero Emissions is doing into electrifying industry. But as well as all the work showing where we should go, there's also a lot of work going on in the community um, to stop uh, fossil fuel burning currently and um, the current appetite for fossil fuels that... uh, is abundant in um, in Australia and particularly in Newcastle. So I've got Greg Rolls on the line, and Greg is a spokesperson for Frontline Action on Coal. Welcome, Greg. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Aaron. Greg, I just want to have a bit of a chat. There's been an ongoing campaign um, around the Newcastle area in terms of, of coal train blockages um, and direct action. Can you just give our listeners a bit of an idea of what's going on and I know there's been some um, legal action and, and people of all ages getting involved so just outline for us what's been happening in that area. Uh, so Newcastle is home to the world's largest coal port and a large amount of fossil fuels is exported through Newcastle coal port to the rest of the world to places like China and India 
and there's been a lot of local people who've been dissatisfied with the health impacts that coal has had on the local communities and a lot of people concerned about global warming. Obviously, there's quite a few people worried about that. So there's been several actions in the lead-up to ACTAC, which took place uh, just this week. And so we had about, I think, there were three people who blockaded trains in the lead-up, uh, including a local Newcastle 17-year-old Balin, who and uh, a couple others, and they actually stopped the coal trains from getting into the coal port, slowed down that destruction of the environment which all human society relies on. And over the last week, we also had a large action take place just yesterday, um, sorry, just um, Saturday, where about 60 people managed to gain access to the coal port. And we, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation, and we managed to shut it down for most of Saturday. So there was a large action, along with other protests around Newcastle, there was a large action when, when uh, climate defenders from across Australia gathered and lots of local people gained entry into the coal port, slowed, shut down and slowed down the destruction of the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty pretty impactful action because, as you say, these, these this port's operating 24-7. So in terms of quantity, I mean, how much are we talking there? Uh, there's a fair, fair, fair bit of coal coming out. I believe last year uh, the, the amount of coal, and it's just on our website because I, I don't have the numbers right in my head, but I believe there was about 17 million tonnes were actually exported. Um, if I've got that a number wrong, I apologise. Uh, 17 million tonnes exported last year alone, so quite quite a fair bit of coal. Uh, I heard one figure going around that um, the coal exported from Newcastle, uh, Newcastle Port accounts for 1.2% of annual global emissions worldwide. So it's quite a large percentage for one little uh, port, one little state of Australia to be putting into our poisoning and destroying our atmosphere. Yeah, and um, in the broader picture, I mean, there's um, obviously been a lot of action going on in Queensland with the Stop Adani campaign, and, uh, you know, it's really important. Um, we're also talking on the show today to some activists down in the Western Port area of Victoria, just outside of Melbourne, about uh, AGL coal, uh, sorry, gas infrastructure that they're looking to put in, and and it's it's you know hugely important that um, we don't allow new fossil fuel infrastructure to go in because you know we we need to move away from um, burning fossil fuels as quickly as possible, and certainly new infrastructure is not the way to go. As as we had one activist, Cedar, uh, who managed to stop a train uh, during the week in the lead up, as Cedar um, put it. We needed to transition yesterday, and uh, Seed is a young person, quite talented, quite skilled, is putting all of their time into stopping coal and uh, saving the atmosphere the rest of us, because they're quite scared of what their future is going to look like. And I think we can all understand that as someone who's young, who might be worried about uh, the impacts that global warming is going to have on our environment. And also the fact that our government is refusing to act on this, when you consider that all this is really doing is uh, we couldn't, we, we just, as you would um, beyond zero emissions know, we can quite easily transition over to a renewable plan to create a more safe, peaceful world. But the, our governments are intent on profiteering a few, uh, a few rich people, uh, you know, to add to their capital at the expense of the safety of our environment, and that's that's terrible and disgusting. And it's no wonder that people like Cedar are taking a stand and willing to put their own um, their own freedom on the line to try and protect the environment for the rest of us. So we also saw that um, there's been some um, people at the other end of the uh, age spectrum, if you like to say, um, are also passionate about this. And there were a couple of people, I think, um, uh, barricaded onto the, the rail line itself. 
Uh, we, so also during the actions on Saturday, we had Bill Ryan, a 96-year-old Kokoda veteran who has put himself on the line, his freedom on the line to help protect our climate yet again. Um, we also had Susie Gould, who's a long-term peace activist, get arrested with him. So Bill uh, has been the oldest man to be arrested and held in custody, we, we were told. I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but we were told that by the police. And Bill keeps coming back every time to keep defending the environment because he knows what's important for his legacy and for his kids and grandkids. He's going to keep putting himself on the line. Uh, and Bill, Bill knows the time for playing games is over and we all need to switch from fossil fuels over to renewable energies and we needed to do it yesterday. So this action is absolutely imperative and Bill knows that and that's why he keeps coming back and why we need to support him. Charges been laid on um, any of these actions? or People were arrested on the day. Some people were processed on the side of the coal port. Uh, other people were taken down to... Uh, Newcastle Police Station and charges have been laid. I can't really comment on that because it's a legal process in action. Mm. Um, but people are willing to risk, you know, if we look at the small, you know, crimes that have been accused of these climate defenders. It's nothing compared to the larger crimes we're looking at of uh, corporate greed destroying the living environment. People are already dying around the world from global warming just so a few people who are incredibly wealthy can get more wealthy. It's disgusting. It's a dangerous game we're playing and we need to end coal yesterday. Mm, yep. Okay, look, thanks, Greg. We appreciate um, filling us in on what's going on in that Newcastle area. Um, as you say, it's, it's, uh, that port is um, responsible for a lot of coal going out of there, and you know, Australian figures don't represent necessarily, when we look at carbon emissions, the amount that we export. Um, certainly a lot more than we look at as a domestic consumption in terms of our emissions profile. So it's important to also look at the pollution. So you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR. I'm Erin Jones. Um, thanks for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We've um, covered a bit of uh, direct action and also some research that Beyond Zero Emissions have just put out around electrifying industry. We'll hope to bring you an interview next week from um, the uh, South East Melbourne Manufacturers Alliance around their response to that research that's come out. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, my name's Erin Jones. Uh, make sure that you've got on your calendar the 1st of October, which is the next date for the Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group. All details for that are on the Beyond Zero Emissions website, bze.org.au. And there is a wealth of um, recordings, not only of this radio show, but also our sister radio show, which you can tune into on a Friday morning at 8.30 on 3CR or stream that podcasts from the website. But there's also a whole back catalogue of the discussion groups, which are a real wealth of information. So thanks for listening. 